Uh, Dr. Jeffrey Gurak is with us live via telephone. He's the Libby Clapperman Professor of Jewish History at Yeshiva University, um, former chair of the Academic Council of the American Jewish Historical Society. He has served as associate editor of American Jewish History, the leading academic journal in the field. He is the author of many, many books. In fact, during this conversation, I'm actually asking what book number this is. He is author, thank God, of many, many books. Tomorrow night, he speaks at Stern College on the topic of his brand new book. The book is entitled Parkchester, A Bronx Tale of Race and Ethnicity. And I will add, as I always do, that Dr. Gurak is an amazing mentor of mine whose um, inspiration for all these years I am uh, very much indebted to him for. Dr. Jeffrey Gurak, welcome back to JM in the AM. Good morning. It's always a pleasure to be on your show, and uh, I see you less as a student today, as a colleague, as a friend, and, uh, you know, I'm very proud of all the work you've been doing for the Jewish community over these many years, and it's nice to age together. <laughs> I, just passed, I just passed my 70th birthday, and uh, I'm looking forward to doing more books. This happens to be my 22nd book that I've either written or edited, and uh, in many respects, this book is different from the other books that I wrote. So let's talk about that when you get a chance. Oh, but believe me, I'll, we're going to talk about all of this. I- I'm just astounded by that number. For those of us who are frustrated authors and can't complete their first book, what advice do you have? How do you get 22 books to come out during a career? You know, this is what I do. This is this is my job, and I I work uh, six days a week, and I think about it seven days a week, and uh, <laughs> I'm very privileged. You know, there's a, there's a linkage of one book to the next, and I always have ideas to do something uh, different. And uh, I've been very fortunate to be at a school at Yeshiva, frankly, where I've been encouraged to work specifically in my field of American Jewish history. You know, Nachum. There are hundreds of professors around the country who teach in Jewish studies departments, and they teach in all sorts of subjects. At the Bernard Revel Graduate School, where I've been privileged to teach for 43 years, 43 years, um, I've taught American Jewish history, and uh, I resonate to what my students say to me, and it always inspires me to do different things. And uh, so I feel, I feel very fortunate to have been at Yeshiva and to do this work over the course of the years, even though I've taught elsewhere. And uh, my experience has been diverse. Uh, and uh, again, I've been very fortunate to do my work. So people ask me, why do you write these books? And I say, this is what I do. This is my profession. But you still haven't given that piece of advice I'm looking for. There's, there are many frustrated authors in this audience who feel they have the idea or could sit down and produce something noteworthy when it comes to books. Any one piece uh, of advice you know, you'd give them? Just work. Just work. Feel inspired. Feel that what you are writing uh, is important, and then sit down and do your work. Work work is the greatest antidote to being quiet, that's for sure. And we'll get to your new book in a second, but one last thing on this. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it very often or, or not very often that you will complete the work on a chapter or a book and have a tremendous desire but inability because of publishing deadlines to change something? I'm, I'm always writing drafts and rewriting. One of the things that I do to encourage myself, to give myself a certain degree of inspiration, 
is that I try to I try to research every day and I try to write every day and then revise so that at the end of the day I can say to myself, well, you've accomplished something. And then Nachum, I wake up the next morning and I read what I did and I said, did I write that? <laughs> and, and then I revise and then I revise. Amazing. So, uh, I love it, it. It, it's, it's an ongoing process and thank God I've been at it for many years and uh, I'm hopeful of doing some more books as uh, as time passes. You know, a again, lo- one book leads to the next. Yeah, I hear that. You know, a lot of people don't realize the role that the Bronx played in modern Jewish history. A lot of people speak about this neighborhood, and you know that, the Lower East Side. A lot of people speak about Williamsburg. A lot of people speak about other areas of the five boroughs and, of course, other areas uh, in, in Jersey, etc. A lot of people don't realize what kind of Jewish presence there was, not just in Parkchester, but in the Bronx in general. In 1948, there were more Jews in the Bronx than Medinat Israel. Oh, just to give you one sense uh, of how big the, the Bronx was. And the Bronx had multiple neighborhoods over the course of time. Jewish presence in the Bronx dates back really to the 1880s. And then in the 1920s, when the Grand Concourse really grows, it becomes the epicenter of Jewish life. And Parkchester comes into existence in the 1940s, a very different type of community. And today, uh, there's a significant community where I live in Riverdale, right. which really becomes a Jewish neighborhood in the 1970s. In fact, uh, before World War II, there were a number of Jewish neighborhoods in the city, uh, a number of neighborhoods in the city that were off-limits to Jews, and Riverdale was one of them. In, in the Tony Fieldston section of uh, of Riverdale was off-limits to Jews, just like Forest Hills was off-limits to Jews back in the interwar period. So it's a multiple community history, namely the Bronx, and each neighborhood has its own distinctiveness, that's for sure. Those those of us who have a casual knowledge of the Bronx basically you know, point to the Grand Concourse area and Pelham Parkway. Those are, I think those are the two that the casual observer would know had Jewish presences. Well, you know, before before World War II, the South Bronx, the, the Hunts Point section of uh, of the Bronx was heavily Jewish. Uh, Van Cortlandt Crest, north of Van Cortlandt Park, was home to co-ops that were built by the labor unions in the 20s, before the Great Depression. They were hotbeds of radicalism. In fact, the Bronx, before World War II, had the cachet of being more radical uh, socialists some communists in the in the uh, in the East Bronx, as opposed to Williamsburg, which was heavily Orthodox, and uh, Borough Park, which of course had a, a Zionist orientation. So each community, each neighborhood, in each borough had a very distinctive personality. Although I argued in one of my other books that the people who live in these neighborhoods can be differentiated between activists who want to change the world like the Zionists in Borough Park, and people who are just interested in living a day-to-day life and uh, surviving in America, advancing in America. So that's one of the dialectics that took place in these neighborhoods. So you're right, Bronx is very big. And uh, again, 1948, there were more Jews there than in Midianite Israel, and, just to give you a sense of how big the Bronx was. And the total neighborhoods? I mean, like the Lower East Side we look at as one neighborhood. How many different neighborhoods do you think had Jewish presences in the Bronx back in the early part of the 20th century? At least seven or eight neighborhoods. Wow. You have Morrisania, you had uh, Hunts Point, you had the Hunts, Grand is, Concourse. Isn't Hunts Point officially south of Yankee Stadium? Like, that's really—I can't believe there was a Jewish community there. 
Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, the, the great radical thinker uh, Irving Howe, for example, grew up in that neighborhood. It was, and, uh, uh, in fact, Jewish presence in, uh, in the Bronx dates back to when some German-American Jews fleeing the arrival of East European Jews not only go up to Harlem, which was the site of one of my earlier books, but also go over into the, um, into the Bronx. So there's been, a, again, a large-scale Jewish presence uh, all over the Bronx. And geogra- uh, geographically, Parkchester is where? Is it in the center of the Bronx? Where is it? If, if you crawl or drive the Cross Bronx Expressway mm-hmm. out to Queens, in the East Bronx, on the way to the Whitestone of Throgsnet Bridge, you will see uh, 151 buildings on 129 acres of land called Parkchester. That's what which it was, is, right there. Which was a, there was nothing there until 1940. It was huh. vacant land owned by the Catholic Church. And then Metropolitan Life Insurance Corporation bought that area. And in the course of two years, from 1940 to 1942, they built 151 buildings on 129 acres of land. And those of you who know Manhattan, Parkchester was an older sister community to um, Stuyvesant Town, which is just north of the Lower East Side, which was built in 1943-44. The difference was that Parkchester was on vacant land. Um, Stuyvesant Town, slum clearance, cleared out that area, and made way for this planned community owned by Metropolitan Life Insurance Corporation. They had a lot of money. They wanted to invest in real estate. They got a sweetheart deal from the New York State Assembly, and they built Parkchester, uh, a planned new community. So people who are moving into that neighborhood are starting fresh. They're moving into the area, and I argue that this was an alternative to moving to suburbia which again begins more after World War II. Very similar very similar to Co-op Village right here on the Lower East Side. That's correct. When those That's buildings correct. were built to kept people in the area. Right, right. Although those co-ops on the Lower East Side predate Parkchester, but the interesting thing about Parkchester was it was a development that started fresh. And by the way, you sh- you should never ask a par- say to a Parkchesterite that you lived in a project Right. lived in a private development. Right. And that was the difference, because projects were on the other side of the track. Right. Literal, literally, <laughs> the what's now the number six train that started in Parkchester down to Yorkville. I'm laughing uh, I'm, I'm laughing because I learned that lesson 30 years ago and I moved in here right. <laughs> about that's, the that's sensitivity. The, yeah. There's a difference. And, and by the way, projects, and there's issues today in terms of our city in terms of projects, you know, denote minority communities as opposed to a private development that Metropolitan Life Insurance Corporation was very, very, very proud of in building Parkchester. Uh, Dr. Jeffrey Gorak is with us. The book is called Parkchester, A Bronx Tale of Race and Ethnicity. He speaks tomorrow night, 7 p.m. at Stern College. We'll get those details a little later on. Um, So now if you you characterize Borough Park the way you did, and I think the older people in our audience certainly agree with you, some of the younger people may find that hard to believe, frankly, a characterization of Zionist. Uh, and, of course, Williamsburg, uh, you know, completely developing as an Orthodox community even back then. How would you classify Parkchester religiously? Yes, okay. So this is an interesting community in terms of its Jewishness. I should say at the outset that what is different about this book for me as a historian is that this is the first book that I've written where Jews are not in the center of the story. Uh. In other words, this is not so much an internal Jewish history of Jewish life, although we'll talk about that in a moment, but rather this is a community where Jews shared the spotlight 
with Italian-Americans, large-scale Irish-Americans, white Protestants, and from the period of 1940 to 1968, it was totally, almost totally segregated. No African-Americans, Latinos were allowed in the neighborhood. This was a lily-white community, so much so that people growing up in the neighborhood, they even realized to a great extent that they're living in a, ra- a racially segregated neighborhood. Today, Parkchester is multicultural. It is African-American, Latino, Bangladeshi. There are six uh, mosques in the neighborhood. There are almost no Jews left in Parkchester. Jews were not driven out of Parkchester. They aged out of Parkchester, and they moved to, uh, moved to other neighborhoods. But for Jewish people moving into Parkchester, because you asked about the Jewishness right. of Parkchester, what's different about Parkchester as opposed to the Grand Concourse or Borough Park, you know what? If you lived on the Grand Concourse and you never went to a synagogue, you were living in a Jewish neighborhood. Right. In other words, in one of my books I interviewed, the late, great Dolph Shays. You know, I have a bit of a sports background, too. Right. Okay? <laughs> and Dolph Shays told me that he lived four blocks west of Grand Concourse. And I said to him, Dolph, did you ever go to shul? Were you ever bar mitzvah? He said there were some great synagogues uh, on the Grand Concourse, like the Concourse Center of Israel. I never went to synagogue. But I felt that I was in a Jewish neighborhood because there were Jewish stores, Jewish signages, the butcher shops, the bakeries the candy store, uh, uh, clothing stores that had Jew- Yiddish and Hebrew names. It was a Jewish neighborhood. When you move to Parkchester, the way Parkchester was developed, there was no Jewishness explicitly on the street. Mm-hmm. So you had, you had to develop a Jewish community. And in fact, I argue in the book and in some op-ed pieces that I've written subsequently that either explicitly or implicitly, Jews uniquely for New York, are not moving into a Jewish neighborhood. They're moving into a mixed neighborhood. And it's a great challenge for religious leaders to build a Jewish community. It's almost like moving to a suburban locale, but even more so because suburban locales have JCCs, YMHAs, and the like. So most of these Jews are opting to live among Gentiles. There are no Jewish buildings. If you, you got an apartment in Parkchester and you looked at the, uh, the mailboxes, you would see names of all different ethnic groups. So it's a different challenge, a different story. It's not about Jewishness so much. It's about how Jews are living with their Gentile, with their white Gentile neighbors. And then again, when the African-Americans are finally allowed in in the late 1960s, uh, the neighborhood changes. Uh, to a great extent. Can you go back for a second to Grand Concourse? When you say Jewish neighborhood, you mean Grand Concourse from what street to what street? Well, the Grand Concourse runs from really the 140s up to uh, uh, 200 and to Mashlu Parkway. If you can visualize the map, yeah. a, T, a T of the Bronx, the, the cross section is Mashlu Parkway north, and the Grand Concourse runs all the way down, really down to almost down to the um, the Third Avenue Bridge, but right. the Jewish section of of uh, the Grand Concourse in its heyday was basically from where Yankee Stadium is, a little bit west of the Grand Concourse, 161st Street, the Great Concourse Plaza Hotel, and uh, I've done some tours of the Bronx. Uh, many of these synagogues are now churches. Uh, you can see some of these great, large Orthodox synagogues and conservative synagogues 
that are on either side of the Grand Concourse up to, let's say, 200th Street. So it's a two, a two mile, 40 blocks. It was two, 40 uh, blocks. Two, that whole yeah, area was Jewish. It's was unbelievable. Pre- predominantly Jewish, although Dov Shea says, you know, it was a totally Jewish neighborhood. It's not true. Only seven out of ten people were Jewish because I looked at, at the census statistics. Right. But the fact is you had a sense when you live in the Grand Concourse or on Eastern Parkway that you're living in a totally Jewish neighborhood, although that wasn't true. When you lived in Parkchester, you realized day one that perhaps your parents had chosen to live in a neighborhood where they were generally accepted and they're choosing to live in a mixed neighborhood, a very different experience uh, for Jews. Did general acceptance mean that a, a Jewish kid could get along and integrate socially with all the different ethnic groups in Parkchester or only a limited number of them? That, that, that's that's the, one of the great challenges of the book. You know, I, I interviewed a gentleman named Peter Quinn, who's an Irish-American historian, and he grew up in Parkchester, and he was a speechwriter for Governor Mario Cuomo. And he wrote a memoir of uh, living in Parkchester in the 50s and 60s. And he said, uh, it's a great line, which has informed the love of my work. He said, the Jews and the Irish live separately together. Mm-hmm. In other words, he said, in earlier periods of American Jewish history in the 20th century, the truth of the matter is the Irish and the Jews did not get along. They were constantly in conflict. They fought over jobs, over housing, over politics. Uh, I'll tell you a funny story. I don't know if it's funny, but about 10 years ago, I was asked to speak at the Irish consulate in New York about Irish-Jewish relations and how Jews and the Irish got along so well. And I was hard, you know, I was hard-pressed to find the example of where <laughs> Jews and the Irish got along. And, and then I remembered, interestingly, that between 1945 and 48, uh, due to the activities of William O'Dwyer, the Irish longshoremen helped the Irgun uh, uh. smuggle guns into into. Eretz Israel before the uh, the rise of the state of Israel, because the Jews and the Irish had one thing in common, and that is they both hated the British. Right. Okay, so the it's a predominantly Irish neighborhood, and I argue in the book that you don't have a father Coughlinite type of atmosphere in Parkchester, and yet there were limits to the degree to which Jews and Irish got along. We didn't date them; they didn't date us. We played in the playgrounds with them. There were fights in the playgrounds. Uh, there was playing together in the playgrounds. Being a sports guy was interested in that. But when the day was done, Jews and the Irish and the Italians went their separate ways. There was no organized anti-Semitism against Jews. You know, uh, when you do this work, you think that you, you're the only fellow on the block doing the work. So it turns out that there's a historian who's doing work on the history of youth gangs in the Bronx <laughs> in the 40s and 50s. Wow. Your listeners, of course, know that Leonard Bernstein's uh, West Side Story, mm-hmm. which was supposed to be East Side Story originally about an Italian and Jewish interaction, was based upon the prevalence of street gangs during this time period. Right. Uh, in Parkchester, so he sent me a map of where the gangs were that preyed upon Jews in the Bronx. And there's one area where there are almost no gangs, and that's in Parkchester. And that's because, interestingly, 
It was a controlled community. They were actually Parkchester cops. They weren't. They didn't carry guns, but they monitored the community. And by the way, if you stepped out of line and you climbed over the fence to play basketball before the park opened, or you rode your bike on the sidewalk, excuse me, or you picked flowers, your parents got a note from the Parkchester cops, <laughs> and you got enough notes. Uh, they tried to throw the family out. And if you were um, uh, too many times arrested, so to speak, by the Parkchester cops, and you got married and you wanted an apartment, they had a rap sheet on you. So, look, this is a story when you have verification of the story by Jews and Gentiles, when six people tell you the same story, it has right. some legitimacy to that, okay? So that's in the book. So the Parkchester cops monitored it. I'm not saying that the Irish and Jews love one another, but there's a difference between hatred and what I say is getting along getting along one with the other, uh, well, which takes place in Parkchester. Was there any noteworthy Orthodox synagogue in Parkchester or a noteworthy uh, Orthodox religious leader there? Well, there are but two synagogues in Parkchester. You would not be surprised that there's no Reformed congregation in Parkchester because uh, these are East, these are children and grandchildren of East European Jews, right. so Reformed Judaism has no cachet. So there are two synagogues, not within Parkchester, but in what was called Interfaith Row on the outside of Parkchester. So this Metropolitan Life Insurance Corporation, pretty cynical. They didn't want church and synagogues within Parkchester in its white heyday wow. because quote, the wrong element might come to pray, not in the synagogues, but in the church. Right. And that's referencing African-Americans and Latinos. Wow. So there are two synagogues. There's the Temple Emmanuel of Parkchester, and then there's Young Israel of Parkchester. Now, the rank and file of these two synagogues, and this gets us into the history of orthodoxy and conservatism right after World War II. Most of the families I would say 95% of the families who go to the Orthodox synagogue or the conservative synagogue, their religious values are pretty much the same. They're sending their kids to public schools. They're not uh, Shomri Shabbat. They show up certainly for Yomim no Re'im, but that's the rank and file. Now, within the young Israel of Parkchester, you have where the majority of the youngsters and the families are not particularly observant. Again, this is a 1950s phenomenon, 1960s phenomenon. We see this in suburbia at that time. There were a handful of families who sent their sons, and in some cases their daughters, more than sons and more than daughters, to Jewish day schools, to yeshivas. Closest one would be? Closest one would be, geographically. The closest one would be the Salanta Yeshiva, which today is the SAR Academy. Right. The problem with Salanta back then, it was a very different school than SAR today, which is, my kids went to SAR, which is avant-garde and a wonderful school. Frankly, Salanta was a little bit weak on the secular side. Right. The, that frustrated the, the parents. Frustrated the parents who wanted this degree of integration. Right where what was called the Young Israel Parkchester Wiz Kids. Who's the rabbi of the Young Israel Parkchester? Anybody I rabbi, heard of? Rabbi Moshe Aryeh Schwartz, Maurice L. Schwartz, was the rabbi there for many years, for mm. uh, maybe 30 years in that congregation. But the, the kids who went to day school, the boys, more boys than girls, 
got on the subway, and uh, went down to Ramaz. Some for eight years, and then some of the boys after eighth grade went to uh, TA or MTA, as we used to call it, when there was a BTA, which is no longer in existence. And the girls stayed there for 12 years. But these were the exceptions to the rule. And um, you didn't ask me why I wrote about Parkchester. I reveal in the last two pages of the book something that is significant, that I grew up in Parkchester. I thought that, you grew up in the Grand Concourse. No, I grew, I grew up in I, – I'm one of – I was one of those privileged uh, – they were called whiz kids, the boys who were sent to Ramaz. And I always make the joke that I was at Ramaz on an athletic scholarship, which isn't totally true, okay? <laughs> you know, I came from a, uh, a lower-middle-class family, as did all these people, and we got on the subway – and we went down to Ramaz, in my case, for 12 years, in some cases, eight years. And we were trained in, uh, uh, within our synagogue by two outstanding lay leaders, influenced by Rabbi Schwartz. And, um, you know, uh, we, we young Israel Parchester people feel very, very uh, sympathetic and warm about our experiences. And we say that per capita, we produced a, a cadre, mostly of young men, who went on to do some nice things in the Jewish community. One of them became a rabbi in, for 40 years in New Jersey. Um, one of my colleagues at Rebel Graduate School is a Parkchesterite. His brother teach, uh, teaches philosophy at Hebrew University. My own brother was a, was a synagogue president in New Jersey. One of our alumni was the originator, the executive producer of a Chok Tsum which was the Hebrew Sesame Street. Yeah. And it all came out of the young Israel of Parkchester. But I have to emphasize that the conservative and the orthodox rank and file were pretty much the same in terms of their levels of observance. Right. And many of them move into parches and say, we have no interest in uh, synagogue life, whether it is orthodox or conservative. So it's a snapshot, and this is not so much in the book, but I think it's of interest to our particular audience uh, on your show to talk about the Jewishness of Parkchester and how it was very different. And I also want to say, this is the 50s and 60s. You know, we're living, thank God, in an era where so many kids, so many kids go to day school. That wasn't the case back then. Right. And I also have to say that there was a gender d- differentiation of families who were scrimped and saved to send their kids to day school or yeshivas, more often than not sent their sons and not their daughters to day school. Although, there's one other note. There was an experience in our shul. I can't give you the date, but this is in the pre-Orthodox feminist era. It must have been in the early 1970s that at a youth Shabbos, one of our young women who went to Ramaz walked out of, with the permission of the rabbi, walked out of the women's section, walked up to the bimah, and gave a Devar Torah. And then she walked back to her section. And there was no grumbling. There was no <laughs> opposition. It just happened. So it's an interesting sideline to the story. But again, the book, which is designed not so much to talk about the internal life of Jews, uh, has this dimension that is... I think, very important to our audience, and uh, that's one of the things I'll be talking about tomorrow night uh, to our home crowd, our home crowd uh, here at uh, 
at Stern College. So and the and, and hence the uh, the subtitle, A Bronx Tale of Race and Ethnicity, because it is the Jewish experience within a neighborhood that had multiple races and ethnicities. That's correct. Um, I, I want to, yeah, I want to say something else. One of the things I'm most proud of as far as this book is concerned is that uh, 15 years ago, when our synagogue closed, I prevailed upon the last president of our synagogue, our synagogue in Israel Park, Chester, who, by the way, sits next to me in Riverdale at the Hebrew Institute of Riverdale. Uh, I prevailed upon them to let me save the records of the school. Right. So with the help of our dean of libraries, we rented a U-Haul van. I found three strong students said, fellas, we're going on a road trip. <laughs> we went to park just, we went to the shore, and we opened the door, and I said, okay, guys, take everything. And we looted the shul of all the records, which are safely ensconced in our archive at Yeshiva University, not knowing that I would write about this community. And so when I turned to do this, this, uh, this book, <laughs> I have no life, okay? I read synagogue bulletins. I read through the synagogue bulletins that I saved with these students' help. And, you know, to maintain a shul, uh, the first prerequisite is to have a daily daily minyan. Right. So you see, over the course of time, the rabbi asking for volunteers for the minyan, mm-hmm. and then begging for a minyan, and then finally Rabbi Schwartz leaves the shul because he says, a shul without a minyan is not really a shul anymore. Very, right. very sad story, but it comes out of, it comes out of those records, which, uh, which I preserved. And right. I, also, I also have a student <laughs> who did a senior thesis, he looked at Rabbi Schwartz's sermons and studied his sermons and told us what issues occupied a uh, an Orthodox rabbi in 1950s and 1960s. So there's when, a when you, effect on everything. When you were born, your parents lived in Parkchester. Yes, and father, so, so you've only father, so you've only lived in Parkchester and Riverdale. Uh, my experience in Parkchester is from 1949 to 1974. My parents were among the first residents in Parkchester. Uh, they moved in in 1940. My father's occupation was a firefighter for the longest time, as you know. Right. That was the number one occupation of Parkchesterites, Jew and Gentile. They wanted uh, firefighters, policemen, postmen. They wanted this type of person with what they called solid family values. I interviewed, I spoke to, I read memoirs of Jews and Gentiles. To get into Parkchester, a social worker came to your home and investigated whether you had a proper family with white gloves to see if there was any dust on the mantle, whatever it may, may be. So my parents felt very fortunate. They felt they were chosen people to get into Parkchester. And we lived there. I lived there until we were married in 1974. And then after a year, I had a fellowship at, in Cincinnati. My wife and I moved to Riverdale along, this is also interesting, I believe, along with five or six other Parkchester alumni of the Young Israel who wanted to daven together in a new neighborhood. What? My students will understand this is like a Lonsman shop connection. We right. want to be together and some of us have remained in that synagogue, uh, the Hebrew Institute of Riverdale, for the last uh, almost 40 years. Was there, so, was there a cantor at the Young Israel of Parkchester? There was no, there was no, it's a Young Israel shul. 
It was a quiet Young Israel shul, by the way. You could hear a pin drop in that shul. And on the high holidays, so, who led the services? We had our own ballet to filah. Mm. There was one gentleman who was, was very involved in training us. Now, the Gurak boys couldn't, couldn't sing for beans, okay? So we weren't ever given the chance to, uh, to daven for the Ahmed on Yomim Noraim, but we got a chance at Youth Shabbatones right. to daven. Give, to give the great Torah, which, who, Rabbi, Schwartz, which Rabbi Schwartz ghost writ for, wrote for us, you know. Who prepared you for your bar mitzvah? Well, um, I was prepared by um, uh, two gentlemen, uh, one named Kelly Winkler, Kalman Winkler, uh, Julius Horowitz. They helped me prepare me for my bar mitzvah. I did not do a particularly good job. <laughs> I, I, I still think that laning is, is the, the single most difficult skill that uh, our faith has, be that as it may. But there was no, there was no official cantor. It was a young Israel synagogue. You know, young right. Israel synagogues have, unfortunately, a negative cachet in many areas of being noisy synagogues. Right. In our synagogue, you could hear a pin drop. Amazing. And you, did, you didn't sit with your parent or your father. You sat, you sat in a special boys section. Right. And Mr. Winkler, a blessed person, sadly he's gone. All these people, like my folks, are all long gone. Would walk up and down the aisle, and if you spoke, I'll use a sports metaphor, <laughs> he would give you a sunny Liston glare, which would melt you into butter. He'd yellow, so was, he'd, he'd yellow card you. <laughs> he, he would yellow card you, Ab- absolutely. And the book but, is, you know, I'm sorry, yeah. No, 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 it was, it was a wonderful place. <laughs> it, was, it was tough love. I have to say with a certain degree of, degree of pride that the young men and a few of the young women who came out of that um, uh, synagogue uh, ended up showing uh, each in their own way uh, a very special commitment to to Judaism I, and uh, yeah. made a special synagogue. I'm, you know? w- I'm way over time here, Dr. Gorak. How long of a walk from your house to the Young Israel of Parkchester? Around the corner. Oh, I, around, that's, that's around pretty the good. Corner. The book is called Parkchester, A Bronx Tale of Race and Ethnicity. Where can one obtain the book? It's available through NYU Press and, of course, on Amazon. And if you come to my lecture tomorrow night at Stern College, there'll be books uh, on sale for me to sign. And I hope that some of my students and some of my alumni, who I remember fondly, will take the chance to come down to Stern College. Uh, it should be a, a marvelous evening. And I'm told not only will there be people from Parkchester, Jewish people from Parkchester, but there'll be non-Jewish people there, too. So there's been a great interest within the Catholic community as well, which fits me fine, because this is a book about inter-ethnic and interracial relations. 7 p.m. tomorrow night at Stern College. Where do people go? They just uh, head to the uh, main uh, main it's desk? At the, it's at the Yogoda Commons on 32nd Street corner of Lexington Avenue, 7 p.m., and it should be an interesting evening. Dr. Gorak, always a pl- I could do this with you all day, as you know. Always a pleasure. Mazal tov on your 22nd book. Unbelievable. Thank you very much. Lots of luck and success in everything you do. I am very proud of you. Thank you so much, and God bless you. Parkchester, a Bronx tale of race and ethnicity, uh, written by Dr. Jeffrey Gorak. Get it, everybody. It's, there's some amazing parts to this book, and as you heard from this conversation, uh, you could learn a tremendous amount about a Jewish community uh, of a, a very important era of the 20th century. 
by reading this book, Park Chester, A Bronx Tale of Race and Ethnicity. More coming up. You're listening to a, um, what is today? Tuesday morning broadcast at JM in the AM. <laughs> <laughs> 